0: Welcome to Naked Age, a historical audio series exploring uncommon stories and profiling unique people who have gone to extraordinary lengths to live a nude life. I'm your host, Evan Nix. In this episode, we'll meet Barbara Williamson, a pioneering figure of the sexual revolution, often referred to as the most liberated woman in America. This is Naked Age. While the nudism movement in the United States has its roots in the first half of the 20th century, it was a comparatively small movement until the 1960s, an era often referred to as the golden years of nudism. During these years, the practice of social nudity proliferated amongst the youth generation who wanted to challenge the institutional structures they inherited and to push for more liberal acceptance of nudity as a form of expression and a personal freedom not just in the gated getaways of nudist clubs, but in public spaces like beaches and parks. Of course, the expanding nudism movement was just one facet of a larger cultural shift that was occurring in the world in the 1960s. Between the introduction of the birth control pill in 1960 and the AIDS epidemic in 1980, social change was challenging conventional ideas, not just of sex, but of gender roles, sexuality, love, and marriage. Historian Stephen Mintz of UT Austin speaking in 1990. In 1960, it
1: was largely inconceivable that couples could cohabitate outside of marriage. By 1970, the number of couples cohabitating outside of marriage had quadrupled. A fundamental shift had occurred in American values, and at the vanguard of that shift had been the counterculture, which had viewed marriage as a trap as a set of restraints on both women and men and had longed for more uh, relationships that weren't constrained by law but were based on trust
0: and emotion. With the popular creed free love as its manifesto, the era of the sexual revolution arguably peaked in 1969, the year of the Stonewall riots and Woodstock. That very same year, A married couple named John and Barbara Williamson clicked into the cultural moment when they opened a clothing optional therapeutic retreat that catered to open relationships and sexuality in the hills of Topanga Canyon in Malibu, California. In Southern California, a young couple were exploring with ideas about open marriage and they created a retreat for other people to come and
1: explore those ideas as well. I wasn't sure if, if you wanted me walking around without
2: clothes, on. That's funny, I felt the same way. <laughs>
1: you stored away your clothes and you lived from morning, noon, and night as a nudist. And people, if they wished, could indulge in intercourse together.
2: It's a good group though, isn't it? A lot of people haven't seen for
1: a while. The idea of this place as espoused by John Williamson and his wife, Barbara, was to try to eliminate jealousy and sexual possessiveness in marriage. They had a lofty notion of what they were doing. Monogamy as we know it, marriage as we know it, the American family as we know it, it's uh, it's not working and uh, it hasn't worked. And it'll work even less in the future. Barbara wanted women to have as many opportunities for sexual experience other people outside of their spouse as men did. And this was going to be one of the tenets of the Sandstone experience equality with the sexes.
0: John and Barbara and the Sandstone Retreat, as their establishment aimed to be called, would later be made famous when they were profiled by acclaimed literary journalist Gay Talese in his best selling book, Thy Neighbor's Wife which explored the sexual revolution in America through a cultural investigative lens. Taliste, who was interviewed in the previous clip from CNN's The Seventies, controversially resided at Sandstone for a period of time while researching his book, where he openly engaged in extramarital sex, weaving himself into the narrative of his own book. When Thy Neighbor's Wife came out in 1980, it was at a very different point in the sexual revolution but similarly benefited from the zeitgeist. The book was a runaway bestseller, earning Gay Talese television appearances and praise. And of course, a lot of money. According to the New York Times, Talese sold the film rights to thy neighbor's wife for $2.5 million. The Williamson's reportedly received a payment for 50,000. According to the New York Times, At the peak of its popularity, Sandstone had a handful of couples who were full-time residents and about 500 paying members who would come to visit on weekends. With Sandstone's location near Hollywood, it became a popular place for celebrities to discreetly experiment with a different kind of lifestyle, with a wide range of prominent names among them, including Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers, and singer Bobby Darin. Sammy Davis Jr. is said to have visited. Barbara Williamson herself once said, I saw more naked stars than any other woman of that era. In the 1970s, a documentary film called Sandstone was produced by a filmmaker named Jonathan Dana and his wife, Bunny. They also resided at Sandstone during the production of their film, which took a cinema verite approach to telling the story of Sandstone. Despite the marketing challenges brought by the nudity and sex portrayed in the film, it became a financial success, playing across the U.S. over a two-year theatrical run. Today the film can be found on the streaming platform IndieFlix. Including John and Barbara, there are ten of us that actually live here at Sandstone. Mm-hmm.
1: Very nice. <laughs> Myself, I was 36 when I first came up. And when you actually live at Sandstone, it's quite a bit different. For one thing, none of us work down in the city, none of us go down and spend eight or 10 hours in the city and then come back up here. This isn't a part-time thing with us. It's, it's a full-time experience.
0: Sandstone and the Williamson's pushed the social envelope to promote their specific idea of liberty. Naturally, they experienced a backlash the community conjured up zoning charges against the Williamson's, which they were forced to fight in court. The financial stress led the Williamson's to shutter the doors on Sandstone after just four years, in
2: 1973.
0: In the book, Thy Neighbor's Wife, lease coined titles for the Williamson's. John became known as the Messiah of Sex. Barbara Williamson was the most liberated woman in America. These titles, catchy though they are, fail to evoke the true nature of Barbara and John's relationship. A marriage based on love and respect, which would endure for decades. In 2013, when John Williamson passed away, the couple had been married for 48 years. As part of the grieving process, Barbara kept a blog on her website, where she wrote about the therapeutic power of nudity, among other things. Barbara Williamson would probably not consider herself a nudist or naturist. But, like naturism, her story explores nakedness, empowerment, and personal acceptance. In her time running Sandstone, Barbara Williamson explored the boundaries of social nudity, living nude 24-7 in a communal lifestyle. She lived publicly nude on film and media, and she was persecuted for nudity. She came away from that experience with stories not many others can boast, and a point of view on nudity and life that is certainly one of a kind. And recently, Barbara Williamson was generous to share some of her views with me over Zoom from her home in Fallon, Nevada. I believe it was Gay Talese that referred to you as the most liberated woman in America. That's right. How do you feel about that?
3: Oh, I definitely embrace it. I've just republished my book that commemorated Sandstone Retreat. It's my legacy. And the title is The Journey of the Most Liberated Woman in America.
0: What does that mean to you?
3: Liberation means individual freedom to make choices and decisions in life that are responsible, considerate, respectful, and caring, not only for myself, but for maintaining the planet and the effect on the people I love as well as the people who love me. I think it came from my maturity Because freedom and responsibility are not natural enemies.
0: What made you more liberated than the average woman in America?
3: Well, it was a whole process of adventuring and having lots of life experiences and embracing change.
0: What made you decide to start a blog about nudity, specifically?
3: After John passed away, I was in grief and pretty much immobilized, so I probably meditated three or four times a day for for hours at a time. So that's whenever I could be in touch with the more sensitive points that I that came into my realization. And so you know, I loved being nude at Sandstone. I for there were five years I did not wear clothes. And I resented having to put them on to go downtown. <laughs> 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 and, yeah. and and so, you know, Nakedness is not an adverse reaction to nudity. But the, the the nakedness is the shame people feel. And with with without wearing clothes for five years, I didn't have any body shame left.
0: Those five years that you essentially lived in the nude, um, was that your first experience with Social nudity or or had you done that before?
3: Well, it was pretty much new to me. John and I had sort of a, a model group that uh, we all got together for therapeutic reasons. So we conducted our therapy sessions in the nude. So a couple of years before Sandstone, why I was indoctrinated into nudity and openness.
0: And what year would that have been?
3: That was 1967. That was the beginning of my sitting around socially nude. <laughs> there just there wasn't those opportunities before because you know with with nudity we we must really be in appropriate settings where we don't feel threatened and can enjoy just being ourselves. Through the act of appearing nude, you know, say like at a nudist park where you might be familiar with, we become more aware of our body. And when when we have, which is common, body shame or a tendency to be sensitive towards our body appearance, Nudity acts as a great neutralizer and guides us to overcome such negative attacks on ourselves. It has a lot of benefits. You know, we're spiritual beings just having a human experience on planet Earth. So with the Sandstone Retreat, You know, we catered to a lot of that, um, our mind, our body, soul, the loving and the caring, the compassion, the gratitude, and, and more. We considered ourselves good human beings and we believed that everybody was. And so that's how I saw people at Sandstone and I saw our health just glowing we were rejoicing and just having having a wonderful life so to speak
0: it sounds like a lot of your thinking around this and those sort of realizations really developed with john in the mid 60s or so
3: yes towards the end of the 60s uh, 67 68 We were in the middle of a sexual revolution, and the young people, they were just revolting because in the 50s, if you had sex one time with someone, you were expected to marry them. So the pressure became so great, like the pressure cooker, the lid blew off. And so the kids were exploding long before We opened Sandstone. I sat down on the couch one day and I said, wow, we don't know a thing about relating to one another. Sandstone had to to stand in as the university teaching us about relating and relationships. That's where all of our power lies. We wanted to bring sexuality out of the darkness and into light. And so that's why we had open sexuality. We left no place for people to go hide. And I noticed that we only allowed couples, come in because we wanted to keep a balance not get too much testosterone and so women with a couple the guys would bring the women and they'd have resistance about coming up there and then once they got there you know they might have kept their clothes on for 10 or 15 minutes and then decided well, that looked pretty good and everybody else was nude, so they just as well get nude too. The women became more open and they really enjoyed the liberation that they felt. It was, it was a very much a freedom experience for them. We found ourselves where we really enjoyed the pleasure of one another and we could play and have fun. And there might be six or eight of us taking a shower together, yeah, you know, just playing like kids. And that was very, very refreshing, and um, it opened our hearts. Body pleasures were were really relished, and that helped us cherish our bodies and take take good care of them.
0: Would you describe? that sort of lifestyle as hedonistic, or do you think that that misses the mark?
3: Oh, I think it misses the mark. Our belief at Sandstone was that our body performs incredible tasks and saw nothing shameful about our humanity. We were actually built for pleasure. Then that could also lead to people feeling really good about themselves and enjoying being a whole individual. So I don't in any way see that as being hedonistic. It's just for our well-being.
0: It sounds like you guys were really um, trying to eschew repression and shame, is that right?
3: Oh, absolutely, you know. I guess we have been sexually repressed for maybe 200,000 years, I'm not sure. Because you know, we come into this world with all these, these body parts and we don't know how they fit together. And I, re- <laughs> I really believe that we have been totally overwhelmed by the masterpiece that we are. And so there's a lot of understanding necessary to take place for us to evolve. And we're overdue for evolving, but we're working on it now. We need to cleanse our body of the shame and guilt that resides within. And it's all about enjoying and embracing all that we are, all that we can be.
0: Can we talk about John a little bit? Maybe you could describe how you and John met.
3: Oh, yeah. I I was in insurance sales, and I had an appointment with John to work up a group plan for them. So I'm sitting in his office, and he's making me very nervous, and I can't understand why I'm so nervous. And he had this painting on the wall, and it was a, a black road leading to nowhere and I said what what is the meaning of that picture you have on the wall he said oh that's just to keep people out of my office asking me a lot of questions and and keeping me from doing my work so anyway (laughs) I guess it worked on me it made me nervous we had uh, locked consciousness and from there on, you know, I was really being guided by him.
0: I've seen his charisma described and, you know, people have talked about his magnetism or his influence. Could you talk about that a little bit? What was he like?
3: Yeah. Oh, a lot of people characterize him as a guru, but he didn't want anything to do with that. He was simply a country boy, and he grew up in the swamps. Would you believe he built his bicycle from scratch materials? He had a brilliant mind, and he saw how everything fit together. And so he was a wonderful guide for me. One of the, the questions that he asked me on our first date is, do you want to change the world? And I said, of course. Well, that was a pretty naive statement from this girl from a Missouri farm because <laughs> I, I was trusting that it was going to be all right. But I had no idea what he meant about changing the world. It actually took us about four months to get married. We, we actually had decided that we were soulmates mates within two weeks and we would have gotten married, but his divorce wasn't final. Once he got the divorce, we went to Las Vegas, double parked in front of the courthouse, went in and got married. I was so nervous. My goodness, I was wasn't certain that my knees were going to hold me up, and <laughs> <laughs> it, t- it took a while for me to uh, adjust to the fact that maybe I wasn't going to lose my independence after all. It was maybe maybe it was my perception. However. Um, John set up dynamics f- for me to change. And there really did need to be dynamics or otherwise a person is not going to change. And so he was, he was very quiet and secretive about the dynamics that he was presenting to me because he did not want me to be able to build defenses against it. That would That would ruin the whole project. So he brought his secretary in and we went to uh, Lake Arrowhead for the, for the weekend. And that was quite a dynamic for me. I wasn't accepting all that too well. And my jealousy and rage, you know, came out. And so we had to work through it. And those were the kind of dynamics that John Wood set up for for change to, to occur
0: so clearly he'd had these ideas around monogamy um, you know er, early on and, and was sort of experimenting with your relationship
3: right right.
0: was there a sort of spark between you both uh, around this that, that came to establishing sandstone or was it more of like a, a slow evolution how, how did that come about from this
3: well, it was a slower evolution because we had um, a group of people that joined us. We wanted to see if we could all relate as family. We were not blood related. And we needed like minded people, as John would describe it, to build a prototype.
0: He was an engineer.
3: Yeah, he was an electronic engineer.
0: Remodeling the, the nuclear family, so to speak, right?
3: Exactly. Group marriage.
0: When did you guys realize you needed a building or land?
3: Well, probably about the time that, that John took his company to public and cashed out. That's when we definitely decided we needed, we needed a retreat, and Sandstone is still a very beautiful retreat, overlooking the uh, Malibu, the ocean. It was just a perfect setting, and I was I was a little shocked and surprised to have the outside community infringing on us and trying to but they were really trying to run us out of business. They wanted us to be gone.
0: Expand on that, you guys faced challenges from your neighbors?
3: Not from our neighbors, Dura. There weren't any close by. I think probably the nearest neighbor was like a mile away and and you couldn't see anything at Sandstone but it was the LA County supervisors. The citation issued was for three or more persons, not family members, exposing our nude bodies to one another. So then we had to go through this lawsuit in order for the court to allow a unique lifestyle to continue. The L.A. County supervisors brought a suit against us.
0: And you had to defend yourself.
3: Right. When we went into the courtroom, I said to those county supervisors, well, you have mentioned nudity, but you haven't said anything about the sexuality. And the moral of that story was they couldn't talk about sex. That is the taboo that was locked down tight on even discussing sex. And the court ruled it was our First Amendment right and dismissed the case.
0: Sandstone opened, um, I gather it was a a little bit of a slow trickle at first to sort of get the word out. Um, what, What was that like?
3: Well, we were able to advertise in the free press at that time. So we opened an office down in Westwood and anybody interested in Sandstone would come to that office and we would interview them. And so that was the screening process that we used. We never had any lack of publicity. Everybody was curious about Sandstone.
0: Did you ever get bad press?
3: Not really. The bad press was the pressure from the power structure outside. Sure. Not everybody wants to change. And so as we were being enlightened at Sandstone, I got this message. Intuitively, that said, well, you can't grow faster than the culture. Well, so there you go.
0: That's so interesting because I feel like you guys just really came around at the right time with Sandstone, that it touched on the culture, it touched on the zeitgeist and, and the loosening of sexual mores in our culture, right? But at the same right. time, there was a clash, and that clash, you guys were just as susceptible to that.
3: Yes, exactly, exactly.
0: (laughs) In what ways was the world ready for Sandstone, and in what ways was it not ready?
3: Oh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure they were awake enough to realize there was something wrong in our culture. The people coming to Sandstone, they were pretty enthusiastic because they were, they were wanting to embrace change in their lives. They knew that there could be something better. And so I heard some of them say, you know, I just wanted to come experience an alternate lifestyle. I wanted to just try and see where that took me.
0: Do you think Sandstone would have worked without social nudity?
3: I don't see how. We had to see ourselves for who we were and how how we could cross that bridge to be authentic human beings and own our sexuality own our individualism.
0: Did you and John look at Sandstone as an experiment?
3: Well, some of the reporters referred to us as an experiment. John resented that. This was an alternate lifestyle on display, a community of people, a love community, And we were just seeing where that took us, but it took us to be much healthier human beings, open to a lot of experiences.
0: Do you think sandstone could happen today?
3: I have to actually say, I don't know, but I do believe that the world needs, uh, we need a lot of sandstones. Mm -hmm. It takes a special kind of person to be able to operate something like sandstone. So I think it would have to be very much on a therapeutic basis, that people were awake as to why they're there and to what to personal growth and, and change in their lives.
0: think anything um, just on a social level is like really impeding that from happening? You know, could somebody go and start that up?
3: I think so. They have the money. <laughs> we ran into financial difficulties with the, the lawsuits, and um, we just needed a few more memberships in order to meet our monthly nut. But still, the fear amongst people was—it was—we it was was like we had maxed out on membership, Hmm. and so we decided to sell the property, and that fell through, and so we just took off to Montana, and eventually some of the the members came in and bought Sandstone. And they operated it for a while. But I think that finances uh, caused them to close down as well. See, it was hard to get financing, almost impossible, for social activities that benefited the culture. And I have to say, John was the most unique person the rest of the world they were just closed to to the whole social effects on our humanity and what we were doing to it john was the the incredible thinker and he actually knew how to create environments for people to enjoy their lives
0: by establishing dynamics right yes you want to look at
1: a community, you can't have a community of peers. That is, people with the same, same attitude, same style, same everything. Uh, you just have a mutual admiration society. And uh, you know, so many people seek this, but all they do in that fashion is simply reinforce their own beliefs about themselves, about others. They exclude the rest of the world, and particularly they exclude any interaction with that world, so they don't grow. dedicate their lives to the the great industrial combine or whatever it is. The two kids in the suburbs or whatever. And because they look around in their very narrow world, sees everyone else just like them, they think, hey, wow, this is great. I must be right. And uh, we try to avoid that here.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm curious to know just, personally, how did you, I mean, your, your life was so much in the spotlight, you know, how, how did you feel about some of those works? Did you have any personal feelings about Gay's book or the documentary?
3: Well, the documentary, um, John and I were general partners with John and Bunny Dana. Mm -hmm. And at the time we said, you know, just document this lifestyle just turn the cameras on and let it roll
0: sure sort of fly on the wall all right your life was so public and in, in that sense that people could see you and what you guys were doing if that ever hit home or, or reached you and john or you guys seem to have been this couple that were kind of like didn't didn't really care what the world thought
3: <laughs> no no we're, we were inner directed people rather than outer directed something that's rather trite but i always said you know we were looking for love in all the wrong places because love is the inner inner discovery and building that love for ourselves the self-love there was nothing egotistical about self-love because self-love is the foundation needed for us to be able to love other people So, we were pretty immune to what the outside world was thinking. In fact, we liked to rub their nose in it for every opportunity we got. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Talk a little bit about your marriage with John. You know, what was the secret ingredient that made it so lasting?
3: Well, at Sandstone, people would come to John and I and say they so admired our relationship. And we said, well, you know, you can have a relationship the same. It just takes total commitment and working on it each and every day. And so John and I kept our relationship open to other people, but we also had guidelines for each of us to follow so that we didn't wreck our own relationship and so by, by continuing that way it gave both of us the feeling of freedom and so that freedom was pretty much assured us of having a lifetime lifelong relationship that was the secret ingredient is the freedom.
0: There is one other thing I, of course, want to talk about, and that's just your book.
3: Well, I wrote the book, this was kind of when John was in his downward trend of life, and, uh, So I wanted to get Sandstone commemorated and documented because I think this is important for history, the journey of the most liberated woman in America. And I've worked it all through. And so it's really my legacy of my journey through Sandstone and my marriage to John John absolutely represented everything to me. I mean, I, it was a treasure meeting him because for the first time in my life, I had love, I had friendship, and I had adventure, and I had change. I was forced to change because I wasn't happy with the way I was. And so I wanted to mature and grow and transform into the best that I could be. And that's what he supported me in.
0: In the 2000s, the Williamsons ran a big cat rescue called Tiger Touch in Fallon, Nevada. Over the years, they rescued over two dozen big cats, including tigers, lions, lynx, and servals. Tiger Touch closed shortly before John passed away. More has been written about the Sandstone Retreat. Out of the few books that I've read, Barbara's does the best job of capturing the true nature of John and Barbara Williamson, an electrical engineer and an insurance saleswoman in a past life, whose attraction to one another created a whirlwind so strong it changed the world a little. Her book also gives you the best sense of the philosopher that John was and that Barbara is, thinking about things in an unabashedly different way and questioning the norms and taboos that they face. One more thing on Barbara's book, The Journey of the Most Liberated Woman in America. Where can somebody find
3: or buy your book? Well, they can go to my website, which is barberwilliamson.org, and they can purchase a copy there.
0: Music for this episode was sourced from the Free Music Archive under a Creative Commons license. The theme song was composed by me, Evan Nix. Clips from Sandstone and a 1990 interview with Professor Stephen Mintz of UT Austin were used with permission. Special thanks to Barbara Williamson, Carl Hild, Jonathan Dana, Timothy Sargent, Shannon Lewis, John Wells, Andy Tabbitt, David Hoffman, and Stefan DeShane. If you enjoyed this episode of Naked Age, please subscribe. Send us a message, listen to past episodes, or read the the behind-the-scenes blog at nakedage.co. Thanks for listening.